Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. KCBS Radio, original podcasts. Night had fallen in Honolulu, Hawaii on February 28, 1905. Most of the guests at the Moana Hotel had retired to their rooms after a leisurely evening eating in the expansive dining room or promenading the hotel's veranda. But piercing through the tranquil air came the cry of a woman in pain. She was found by her maid and her longtime companion, clutching her hotel room doorframe, crying out that she was sick. She had woken up in extreme spasm. Before long, a doctor was summoned to attend to her and began questioning the distressed 76-year-old woman. As he spoke with her, she told him she had been poisoned. The doctor was shocked, but backed up by her companion as a witness, she explained it to him. Someone had tried to poison her before, and recently. The doctor sent for a stomach pump, but it was no use. Despite their best efforts, Jane Stanford, the founder of Stanford University and one of the richest women alive at the time, one of the most powerful women in the country, suffered one more spasm before uttering, this is a horrible death to die. The story of Jane Stanford came to my attention almost a year ago. It was my grandfather's 90th birthday party. Addicted to formality and pomp, he has all his grandkids call him grandfather, for goodness sake. The dinner was held in the back room at an upscale restaurant in my hometown, San Mateo. For those of you not in the Bay Area, San Mateo is roughly halfway between San Francisco and Stanford. We're right by the airport. At this dinner, the family was present and accounted for, including my uncle, who just so happens to have gone to Stanford University. So did my grandfather, so did my grandma, and so did a slew of other relatives. I'm the black sheep who went to Berkeley. My uncle, a self-published novelist in his current state of semi-retirement, has known about my fascination with true crime for some time now. So during the meal, he pulled me aside, and amidst large glasses of red wine, he shared with me a plot point from his upcoming book. This plot point was about Jane. Did I know that Jane Stanford, the founder of Stanford University, had been murdered, and that it had never been solved? And the university hasn't, to this day, acknowledge this part of its history? I had never heard this story before. I was beside myself. How had I never heard this before? In the coming several months, I would begin looking into Jane's story. Although I'm sure in life she would have asked me to refer to her as Mrs. Leland Stanford, I prefer to call her Jane. I feel I know her well enough at this point. 
By the time I started working on this podcast project in earnest, a book was published about Jane, titled Who Killed Jane Stanford? Confirming that yes, I wasn't the only one with questions about Jane's death. But this six-part podcast series will not just be about Jane's death, it will also be about her life. The sheer willpower she contained to continue on after the tragic loss of both her son and her husband. The contradictions in her that led her to run one of the most progressive universities in the country at the time, despite her own more conservative beliefs. The relationships that she cultivated, and inevitably, how one led to her demise. And it will be about Stanford University itself. The most physical manifestation of a woman's dream I've ever seen. Jane Stanford was a complicated woman. But the contributions she made and the legacy she left behind are undeniable, no matter what her intentions were or the intentions of those working against her while she was alive. In my endeavor to understand what led to Jane's death, I will do my best also to understand her and hopefully hand back the narrative of what happened to her after it was distorted and blurred by other parties. Join me as I delve into Gilded Age San Francisco and how it birthed one of the country's most prestigious universities and the woman behind it all. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Gravich, and this is Bitter Academia, Episode 1, An Interrupted Legacy. By all accounts, Jane was a stoic, wealthy, determined, and perhaps unpopular woman. All of these factors may have played a hand in what happened the night of February 28, 1905. But the real story of Jane's murder began before that, more than a month prior. January in San Francisco is cold and bleak. Perhaps the most unwelcoming month in the city out of the year. Christmas and New Year's have passed, and there is nothing to look forward to in the coming months to break through the dull monotony of the winter. That's as true now as it was in 1905. The sky turns a permanent, washed-out gray, and fog clings to the buildings as if desperately trying to get to the warmth within. But at the turn of the century in San Francisco's Knob Hill neighborhood, the topmost point, the few blocks surrounding where Grace Cathedral now stands, the elite were ensconced in their wedding cake mansions, oblivious to the cold. That included Jane Stanford. The evening of January 14th, Jane had hosted a dinner for a group of university trustees at her massive 41,000-square-foot mansion. She had originally intended to go to her Palo Alto home that day and spend the night there, but a last-minute change of plans meant she'd be going up the next day, a Sunday, instead. After the dinner was done and her guests had left, she commenced with her usual bedtime routine. This included taking a glass of Poland spring water from a bottle in her bedroom. Her secretary and longtime companion, Bertha Burner, said goodnight to her around 8 p.m. It was about an hour later when Jane's maid, Elizabeth Richmond, called out to Bertha for help. Bertha emerged from her room, just above Jane's on the third floor, to an unpleasant situation. Jane had drunk from the glass of water and immediately was struck by its bitter taste. Her maid tasted it as well and agreed. Jane threw up the water and continued throwing up multiple times afterward. The three women decided the water must be sent out for examination. 
It would be about a week before a report came back from the pharmacy confirming what Jane suspected. Someone had tried to poison her and failed. They wouldn't the next time. Jane's life before the university is not exactly sparse, but it's not exactly remarkable either. She was like most other women in her position in the latter half of the 19th century who were wealthy. She occupied herself with entertaining, playing the dutiful wife, and collecting art. Photos of her show a woman decked out in Gilded Age finery, heavy dresses with embellishments like embroidery and jewelry. She has large, expressive eyes and a serious set to her mouth. She could be played by actress Olivia Colman, best known for playing another strong woman, Queen Elizabeth II, on Netflix's The Crown. But while Jane appeared ordinary on the outside, she was anything but. Jane Stanford was not a kind woman. <laughs> and Jane Stanford was a suspicious woman. After a while, Jane Stanford learns that when this much money is at stake, you cannot really trust anyone. And that becomes, I think, part of her, her personality. Grief is unmeasurable. And poor Jane, this is the late Gilded Age, where money, stuff, um, wealth, power, and matters of proving how rich you were and showing how rich you were. And that's why we were in that Gilded Age. And this is not really the, the time to be a very powerful woman. She really had her work cut out for her. I would say that she was part of a group of women, wealthy women, who saw it as their obligation to help the less fortunate. Okay. And you think about Stanford, there's, there's elements of that involved in the way that Stanford was originally designed. It, they admitted women. Mm -hmm. This was unusual for a university, you know. Yeah. But, you know, at the outset at least, Jane challenged that. Jane Stanford wanted women at Stanford, and she wanted them to have access to any course that was in existence at the university. She later changed her mind. I mean, she was an yeah. extremely wealthy woman yeah. um, uh, who had been a partner to her husband for decades. Her husband, who had no business degree, no MBA, right? Um, so the notion that somehow she's unprepared as a manager and administrator I think it is colored with an attitude about women, right? right? Um, that is 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 condescending and sexist. Most historical accounts and writings about Jane and her husband tend to focus on what they did once they arrived in California. I suppose because prior to that, they were a typical couple of their time. But for the sake of context, let's start there. I promise it won't take long. Jane was born on August 25th, 1828 in New York to the Lathrop clan. When I started working on this story, one of the first things I did was join Ancestry.com. I wanted to better understand where Jane came from before I got to the end of her story. And let me tell you, Jane's family tree is far more extensive than I ever would have expected. My first search turned up more than 200 direct family trees. I quickly came to realize the Lathrop family is nothing short of prolific. I was surprised to find that several of her distant relatives went on to be religious leaders in their communities. Religion, particularly spiritualism, 
became a passion for Jane later in her life, and it would come to play a factor in the aftermath of her death as well. I connected with a few of her distant relatives during my search and was overwhelmed by just how extensive her family ties truly are. And if that weren't enough, there are about two dozen different characters in the story revolving around her death. At times while working on this, I even got confused about who was who and where they fit in. Jane became a Stanford through marriage when she and Leland Stanford wed on September 30th, 1850. He soon moved out west to join his brothers in business efforts. She stayed behind to take care of her dying father, Dyer Lathrop. After he passed away, Jane and Leland went back out west together a few years later. Leland soon became one of the wealthiest men in California for his role as a co-founder of the Central Pacific Railroad. Despite his reported lack of business acumen, Leland's stature rose high enough to become the president of the Southern Pacific Railroad and eventually governor of California. Throughout all of this, Jane was by his side, fulfilling her role as a high society hostess. Then, very late in life, especially for the time, she gave birth to the couple's only son at 39 in 1868, Leland Jr. The boy quickly became Jane's sole purpose for living. He was doted on from the moment he was born, and Jane and Leland both expected great things from him. In his photos, Leland Jr. is a slight young man with delicate features. He has a small, serious face, but the same large and expressive eyes as his mother. In more than one photo, he is leaning against Jane, mother and son closely bonded in perpetuity. But his life was cut tragically short at the age of 15 on an excursion in Italy. He fatally contracted typhoid fever, a common illness at the time. The grief that Jane felt at her son's death consumed her for the rest of her life. But instead of whiling away her time under a veil, she channeled that grief into something bigger. She wanted a way to remember her son and to have others remember him for what he could have been, something to do his legacy justice despite its abrupt end. While accounts differ on how it came up, Leland had the idea in a dream, the spirit of Leland Jr. visited Jane, the results are the same. The year after Leland Jr.'s death, the idea for Stanford University was born. If you've never stepped foot on the campus of Stanford University, it is truly a sight to behold. While Jane is our main focus in this story, the school's looming presence cannot be ignored either. Nicknamed The Farm when it first opened in 1891 as Leland Sr. was quite involved with horses and horse breeding, the area still hasn't shed its sprawling, almost ranch-like atmosphere. Perpetually sunny, it provides a stark contrast to the foggy San Francisco hills where the other side of our story takes place. I had visited the campus before and have visited several times since I began this project, and each time I am struck by how exotic it seems compared to my alma mater, UC Berkeley. While Berkeley is composed of massive Romanesque buildings set on a sloping incline amongst redwood trees, small creeks, and lush lawns, Stanford couldn't be more different. At Stanford, dry, dusty trails are flanked by statuesque palm trees. Meanwhile, Low sandstone structures in the California mission style beckon curious minds inside. But it didn't always look this way. Yeah, I think people sometimes don't realize that when the university opened, there was only the inner quadrangle. Okay. And no church. Okay. And so there were these one-story buildings around the inner quadrangle. They later got 
at, you know, turned into two-story buildings by adding an extra floor inside. But the, and people said it looked like a factory. But okay. it was these little rectangular one-story buildings around this plaza. That's what the university was during Leland Stanford's lifetime. Hmm. Okay. Um, with a couple of other buildings around the sides. But it was the inner quad. Um, and, and it was, you know, his practical vision. This is Laura Jones. She's Stanford University's archaeologist. It's an interesting job. Well, it might be better if she just explains it herself. I'm the executive director of Heritage Services and the university archaeologist for Stanford. And what that means is that I steward our archaeological sites. We have over 200. And I advise the university on historic preservation programs for our buildings as well. I wanted to understand how Jane made her mark on the campus. Laura seemed like the perfect person to ask. And so the university opens in 1891 with those little buildings um, surrounding the, the inner quad. And then Leland Stanford passes away a couple years later. Right. And the estate's frozen and there's no money and Jane's paying everyone out of her allowance. And when she finally wins um, control of the estate, uh, she goes on this building spree. Okay. And she finishes the quad. So the entire outer quadrangle, all of those buildings that you see if you come up Palm Drive, all of the big four-story buildings, all those corners, that's Jane Stanford. Leland Stanford oh, never even saw it. Okay. Right? She built those. Um, she also built the doomed memorial arch, and she built Memorial Church, and she built the museum, She built and she built Palm Drive. I mean, she built all kinds of things. And so often people just don't realize how... how how small it was in Leland's lifetime. I mean, yeah. I think he had that larger vision. He shared that larger vision with Jane Stanford and with the architects. But she's the one who got it done. Right. right? It, it got finished um, uh, by Jane. And, uh, and, and I think that's it's really sort of a remarkable story. I think um, so, too. And, and she got a lot of criticism for it. They call it the Stone Age. And, <laughs> you know, people try to blame buildings falling down in the 1906 earthquake on her, which is preposterous. But she was really determined to complete that vision. Yeah. Right. That she and, and her husband had had together and was really driven to do it. Um, and she did. Laura is right. The minute you set foot on campus, all you can see is what Jane built. Despite naming the university after her son and commissioning a statue on campus where she is literally kneeling in front of her husband, the school feels entirely Jane's. Well, look up. Do you see an arch? No. No. So in our other example of hubris, there was a massive arch there, again, built out of sandstone, which is so good for earthquakes, it all fell down. But what it depicted, and this was the main entrance to the university, so that's why it's there. This was the place where people walk in when you hop off your stagecoach or your car. It is the main entrance, and the giant arch was to welcome you into it, and on the top, uh, also out of sandstone was a frieze depicting the brave Leland Stanford coming to California on a horse, right? 
and just Google it. It is the most audacious, fascinating depiction of the her- uh, heroism. Is that a word? Of the heroism <laughs> yes. of heroism. Thank you. Of the arch that's being talked about no longer technically exists. Laura mentioned it first. It collapsed in the infamous 1906 earthquake that decimated the Bay Area. The Memorial Arch, just one of several stone structures Jane erected on campus, her Stone Age, as her critics called it, served as reminders to everyone who set foot on Stanford's soil what the school's legacy truly was, and who. Actually, where you are now, just go back towards the Oval. The man who is telling me all of this is Jake Barga. He used to teach a podcasting class at Stanford and also led a ghost tour of the campus. He's in Poland now, but he was kind enough to FaceTime with me during one of my campus visits and guide me through what his tour would have been like. Leland Stanford coming out west, right? A guy who just ran a mercantile shop in Sacramento and then got involved with the railroads and becoming one of the richest people in California, becoming the senator and then the governor of the state getting huge kickbacks from the government to buy land grabs for the railroads and have no conflict of interest owning the railroads and representing the state. He's the one who brought us uh, corporate lobbying, the idea that corporations could have more power than the many or the populations. So that, that huge arch fell down, but it's still called Memorial Arch, and it would have welcomed everyone onto campus, including the ghosts um, of Leland Jr., to the Stanford's uh, gilded campus. It was profoundly ostentatious and self-serving and depicting a narrative of, I don't know, sort of perhaps not accurate, but definitely grandiose. And that's why, to this day, it's still called Memorial Arch, even though it all fell down. And that dedication is still there because she built the entire campus for Leland Jr. I mean, it it is kind of big. I mean, it's eye level, and it's you probably couldn't hold the whole thing. And I don't know if it was placed originally sort of on the left or more on the right, you have to look up the old images because the grandiose arch and the depiction of Leland Stanford's conquering of California on the top would have dwarfed perhaps anything. But I I tell you, people walk through here and they don't read it. You don't see it. And that's the the strange thing about uh, reading the plaques. Most people don't read the plaques. But since you're in the know, this was erected by his mother in 1899. So that's six years before she dies, is poisoned. And the the memorial arch, because again, memorial, it's redundant to say that is dedicated to Leland Sanford Jr. because it's the entire university is his haunting ground. While Jake took me around campus from the other side of the world, he gave me the inside scoop on which buildings were particularly special to Jane. So you're looking at what's called the Cantor Art Museum. That's not its name originally. If you look up at the very top, you'll see, of course, engraved in permanent sandstone what the real name is. Leland Stanford Jr. Art Museum. Yep. And this was where he was going to put all the art that he went around the world to buy 
But the danger of going around the world to buying art is that, say, you could be in Italy and get typhoid, which he did. And inside, actually, is it open? It should be. Oh, no, it's closed Mondays and Tuesdays. <laughs> Dang it. Okay. Cantor was just the, the latest family to give a whole bunch of money to the naming rights. But inside there is the Stanford family room, which has giant um, Disneyland haunted house portrait-sized depictions of Jane and Leland Sr. and Leland Stanford Jr. Plus, they had an exhibit of a collection of Leland Jr.'s things. Like, there was a couple of wooden toys, and he enjoyed painting. So they have all that on exhibit. And if you go to their website under the, um, you can just look up the Leland Jr. collection and you'll see. And we brought out a bunch of these for the class to play with the toys that Leland Jr. would have played with. And he was big into horses because at the time everyone was big into horses. Like in California, people are into their cars. It's no different. And this was a horse breeding ranch. That's what the rich people did at the time. On this particular visit, the museum wasn't open. It isn't open during the beginning of the week, but on a later excursion, I was able to make it inside. And Jake was right. Scores of Leland Jr.'s possessions were there in a small chamber in the middle of the museum, preserved under glass in a sort of curio cabinet. The objects of his collection were organized into sort of categories, the type of thing that made sense for a young boy at the time to find interesting. Geodes, military artifacts, sea creatures. And interspersed throughout were little writings and drawings that Leland himself had made. Everything he'd ever touched, it seemed. While Jake told me about the museum and other buildings, he also showed me which parts of the campus were a bit, well, in the spirit of the Gilded Age, a bit ostentatious. For three decades, and you're looking at Rodin sculptures, and notice that it is a very, you know, like the, the sandstone art building. It's one of the original buildings on campus because Leland Sanford Jr. wanted to be an art curator, which at the time really meant going around the world and buying stuff to put into a museum. And it became, in this gilded age, a way of displaying your wealth. Like, imagine putting Rodin sculptures just outdoors, in the sun, in the California sun. And in winter, sometimes they wrap them in blankets so as not to get any frost damage. Really? Yep. Well, I'm guessing that they don't need to do that now that they've probably been preserved in some way, right? Yeah, I mean, there's... The Rodin's, there's only a certain number of sculpt... uh, casts made from a mold before it's destroyed and you'll see the gates of hell which is the large one in front of you which is the earliest appearance of Rodin's David the famous sort of thinking sculpture you'll see it up on the top some things taken with a modern perspective don't make much sense but you know if you own the railroad it was easy to get material um, over. And in fact, you can go to the Cactus Garden and see the, uh, also a collection. One of the earliest parts of building the estate was the Cactus Garden because it put the exoticism of their ability to collect things 
on display, not the exoticism of the plants themselves, because there was no description about them, where they came from or anything. It was more about, look at all these crazy things that are n never seen in California, and we'll let you see that maybe once a month when they opened it up or when influential friends would come to visit, it was a display of wealth. It wasn't learning about the items. It was saying, look how wealthy we are that we have these items. And that really was the goal. That was the end game of a lot of Gilded Age practices. Keep going, straight on. Mind that big yellow thing, whatever the hell that is. It seems odd that the symbol of Stanford is the redwood tree, but I don't see any redwoods here. It's all palm trees and cacti. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's hardly keeping with the aesthetics, is it? Yeah. In fact, see, trees would be blocking uh, the views of the building, so that's why, you know, the trees weren't there originally. And it's okay if they block out car parks, but... Mm -hmm. There's one of your first exotic cacti. You can see on your left, it's like... Oh, that's a tree? Oh my gosh, that's that's a cactus. This looks like something out of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> like, it's very... <laughs> it's kind of like a mix between a pine tree and a, and a palm tree. I mean, have you ever seen a cactus like that tree? Go, go and read the thingy. Jake is directing me to the plaque in front of the tufty, out-of-place tree. Oh, it's a yucca tree, native to central Mexico. It is the largest yucca on the Stanford campus. It was transplanted in 1894. It was transplanted per Jane Stanford's direction from the Arizona Garden as part of the museum's landscape. It says... The last line says Jane Stanford's access to railroad transportation made her an envied plant collector. <laughs> you can see even the phrasing of that sentence is a way of creating a noble origin myth. Because, remember, it was status. It wasn't to say, look at this beautiful tree. It was to say, I can take this tree from Mexico and bring it all the way up to here. Well, th this tree was taken from Arizona, but yes, that, that is quite the achievement. Oh, Arizona. Okay. And I've, I've heard stories, you have to check that they built railroads just to uh, help her collection, like going out into the desert for no reason other than to transport this, these exotic plants. Well, unknowingly, she laid the groundwork for infrastructure, I suppose. Oh, no, I mean, they didn't maintain them, and a lot of them were turned up uh, to reclaim the metal for war efforts. So, yeah, railroads don't survive very long. Um, and the, the wood, the wood uh, ties don't last either, so you can tell a contemporary railroad if they don't have wood ties. But, yeah, and she probably, or 18 or so, they probably built the government for it, right? Because that's just what they did. You never know. But yeah, there you go. There's there's a tree that Jane herself went to the, the high deserts of Arizona and dug up. Jake's observations about Jane remind me that Gilded Age wealth was not meant to be practical. Jane's cactus collection, her other displays of money, were expected at the time. And Jake isn't the only one who thinks this of Jane. The other person is someone very close to this story, closer than most, who now, ironically, lives at the opposite end of the state. She will. Oh. So Jane Stanford, it appears from the sources we have, is um, a figure who is a Gilded Age multimillionaire. 
She has a life of leisure. She has a son, but he comes relatively late in her life, especially for that period. And she um, devotes her life to her son, Leland Jr. Um, that is what she does. And she travels, she collects things, she buys things. She pampers her son. She's raising him to take over the Stanford fortune. And Leland Sr. Um, dotes on him too. So he, he is an incredibly spoiled and precocious child. But that is her life until he dies. This is Richard White. Richard literally wrote the book on Jane. He's the author of the book that came out in 2022, which caught my attention when I first started looking into this case. His book, along with a couple of others, were my initial primary resources for this podcast. Richard and Jake know each other quite well, as Jake helped with the class Richard was teaching that became the inspiration for the book, where students were tasked with combing Stanford's archives to try and solve Jane's death. Those students even made a podcast episode that year about their findings and their journey. It seems Jane inspires storytelling in many people. Both Jake and Richard have since parted ways with the university. Jake for Poland and Richard for Southern California. Richard and I met on a sweltering August day in Los Angeles when I began researching Jane. We sat at a table covered with papers and cat hair in the mercifully air-conditioned house he was temporarily occupying. You clean off some of the cat hair with it. So. Hey, you know what? They're half and half. I'm supposed to let them out in the morning, and they don't go out of the yard. Um, but they like to be outside, and then they come in, and they're up at 5.30 yowling for food. Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. The cats weren't his. They came with the house. I'd wanted Richard's perspective for some time, because before his book came out, the only other in-depth analysis of Jane's murder was a slim volume published in 2003, by a Dr. Robert Cutler, who has since passed away. That book took a very medical approach to Jane's death and offered up a different culprit than Richard. Each book could not have been more different, but both came to the same conclusion, that Jane had been poisoned and the crime had been covered up. The cover-up, orchestrated by key figures involved with the university, claimed that Jane had died from natural causes and that no one would have wanted to kill her. This is a narrative that still goes unchallenged at the university to this day, a thread that Richard's book pulls apart in one fell swoop. I'm suspicious of all narratives. <laughs> um, I suppose that's a good thing. <laughs> especially since if you've ever been to Stanford, there's the tour. And the tour is always undergraduates, always walking backwards, always giving an account of the founding of the university. And um, Teaching there for 20 years, I could not help but hear various versions of the tour. And the tour always went to how beneficent the Stanfords were, how they were devoting their fortune to the um, children of California, and how, in fact, they were a model of philanthropy, which, of course, is to encourage other people to engage in similar philanthropy and give money Makes to sense. Stanford. <laughs> Makes sense. So I was, I was always very suspicious of that narrative, and I became more suspicious the more I learned about Leland Stanford. At that time, I didn't know much about Jay. Richard's suspicions are not unwarranted. Despite my efforts, the university hasn't made much of a comment on this except for one email from their Director of Emergency Communications and Media Relations. Her email reads as follows. We acknowledge that many questions surrounding Jane Stanford's death remain unresolved. 
A Stanford Magazine article in 2003 cited Robert Cutler's investigative work, and in 2017, a group of first-year students developed a podcast recounting the circumstances of her death for their class project. We are in the process of carrying out a broader initiative to more fully tell Stanford's history, including the role of Jane Stanford. The school did not respond to my requests for elaboration. Also, despite the fact that Richard was a professor there for many years, and the book was reviewed in the campus paper, the university never commented on its publication, which is something I've asked almost every person I've spoken to about this that are still connected to the university. Why won't the school comment? It seems most likely that the school doesn't want to include such a sordid story in its creation, But lots of higher education institutions in this country have complicated pasts. Yale University was quite literally named after a sort of pirate, and the founder of Rice University was also poisoned. Any institution as old as these will have some darker elements in their history. Jane's tragic fate will become this history in the winter of 1905, as her life sets on a trajectory to end. It's been a week since the first poisoning attempt. The bottle containing the tainted Poland spring water has been sent out to a local pharmacy, which then sent it to a separate lab for analysis nearby. While waiting for the results, Jane went about her business as usual, despite the alarm. In some cases, she even makes light of it. For instance, she ran into Stanford's president at the time, David Starr Jordan, on the train from San Francisco to Palo Alto the very next day, and told him about the poisoning in a joking manner. She sees friends and her brother's family in the interim, even having another dinner party. When the analysis finally does come back, it shows that there is three quarters of a grain of strychnine in the bottle. Half a grain is usually enough for a fatal dose. But the strychnine was not pure. Instead, it was a type of rat poison that could be easily purchased at the time. The fact that it was rat poison broadens the suspect pool, as anyone could buy it, and offers one reason why it didn't work as rat poison isn't as effective as pure strychnine. In response, the Morse Detective Agency was engaged to investigate the matter and to help keep the incident out of the newspapers, as a scandal like that could have affected university affairs. In the meantime, Jane makes a trip down to San Jose and then back to Palo Alto. Then, in the middle of February, she announces her intention to embark on another one of her many worldwide travels. This time, she'd be heading to Japan, by way of Hawaii. She boarded a ship bound for the Big Island on February 15, 1905, with her longtime companion, Bertha, and a maid. She would return in a coffin. And it's possible she might have known this trip would be her last. Next time on Bitter Academia. Well, think about what gilding is. In gilding, you take some cheap metal and you put a shiny coating on it, maybe gold, maybe fake gold, something shiny, so that it it looks really nice. But underneath it, it's kind of cheap and base. We learn more about the environment that Jane and her peers found themselves in at the turn of the century in San Francisco and more about how Leland Stanford's wealth was accumulated in the first place. The Central Pacific became a major undertaking, a major corporation, a powerful corporation, 
but even more powerful once they developed the Southern Pacific to go from San Francisco all the way to New Orleans, down through the valley across the southern U.S. to New Orleans. More land grants. The Southern Pacific Company became the largest landowner in California. Yeah. And had a monopoly over rail transportation for a surprisingly long time. That rampant wealth would prove to be at times a curse more than a blessing for the Stanfords, and particularly for Jane. I mean, do you think she just had to? Like, did she have people that, it doesn't sound like she had very trustworthy people helping her. No, she doesn't, and she learns by being betrayed. Okay. (laughs) After a while, Jade Stanford learns that when this much money is at stake, you cannot really trust anyone. Bitter Academia is an Odyssey original podcast, researched, reported, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich, edited by Myron Kaplan and Matt Pittman, production engineering and sound design by Matt Pittman. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Bitter Academia on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.